Hello, I'm Matt Gibbard and this is the Modern House Podcast. In this podcast, I talk to artists, chefs, entrepreneurs and all sorts of other people we admire about the importance of a well-designed home and how it can improve your life. Each guest chooses their three favourite living spaces from anywhere in the world and we discuss what we might learn from them that we can apply to our own homes. Today I'm talking to the future president of the Royal Institute of British Architects. He's also co-founder of the esteemed architecture practice AHMM. It is, of course, Simon Alford. I hope you enjoy it. Simon, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. As always, I've asked you to pick your three favourite living spaces. And I think what's great is you've made some really personal choices. So really looking forward to talking about those. But first of all, lots of people will be very familiar with what you do, but other listeners may not. Could you just tell us a little bit about your practice, AHMM? You know, what does it stand for? And and what are some of the projects that you've worked on? Okay, uh, well, I worked at college with three friends, uh, Jonathan Hall, Peter Morris, Paul Monaghan, and then when we left, we, we, we went out. It was heady days in the 80s, and we, we went for jobs together as a group of four, and then we did competitions in the evening. And when we were in our... Well, we were at 26, 27. We won some competitions, and we opened an office, and we had this idea that we would build the buildings of the city we always talked about as students. Um, background buildings doesn't make them very important buildings, but we were interested in this idea that architecture should exist everywhere, whether it's a school or affordable housing or a hospital. And so over the last 30 years, AHMM, as, as we're known, has built a, a large portfolio of projects in London, around England, and, and increasingly around the world. I mean, in London, think of key projects. Educationally, we did a big academy called Westminster Academy that's by the Westway that was shortlisted for the Stirling Prize. And then we did a health centre in Kentish Town that was shortlisted for the Stirling Prize. And then we did an office building in Angel that was shortlisted for the Stirling Prize. And then, you know, we did a school called Burntwood that finally won the Stirling Prize. In a sense, <laughs> not the that. Stirling Prize is the be-all and end-all, but it's a little marker of kind of projects. But they were all, you could call them everyday buildings. And yeah. it was, you know, so they're true to that interest we've always had. I mean, we've also, we also designed the Saatchi Gallery and we've worked at the Barbican Arts Centre for 20 years. So we like buildings of civic import, but we also like the idea that architecture is to be made anywhere that someone wants to make it. Mm. And well, that that's yeah. really important to seek that out. And indeed, it was really set up by the first competition we won when we opened the office. We won a competition for Walsall in the West Midlands for bus station. Um, it, the competition brief was 14 bus islands and we created a 94-metre by 50-metre uh, elliptical concrete roof, gathered it, all the buses together and made a new square and said, actually, transport is a civic function and should be celebrated. So that echoes through all our work and has always been there since we were studying together at the Bartlett. OK. I mean, you've taken AHMM from, I think you established it in the 80s, to being a medium-sized practice and then a very big one. How many people do you employ now? And did you always set out to have a big practice in the first place, do you think? Um, We were four when we began, and we were four after five years. Um, So we we learned a lot. We opened in 89. We were quite grateful in a way that we probably didn't build some buildings in those early years because we learned (laughs) a lot from competitions and little house extensions. I mean, that's what we survived on, was teaching at the Bartlett and at Nottingham and engagement in teaching generally. Now we're about 500 people. 
That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot. Probably. I mean, there's 50 in Bristol. You'll understand this. One of the team, one of my team, wanted his wife wanted to leave and go and live in Wales. I said, look, we know George Ferguson. He's got a thing called the tobacco factory. We'll get you a desk there and you can stay with us and finish that job and we'll see how it goes. And then someone else who used to work for us rang me up and said, can I do that too? And, and it's a lifestyle thing. You can live in another city. That office is working on projects in America, in London and in, in India where we're designing a new headquarters for Google. So... Travel, connection, you know, things that we've learnt about recently, Zoom and Teams, allow a kind of flexibility that didn't once exist. So, you know, size-wise, we just said, look, we're not going to worry about size, worry about architecture and the Mm. quality of what you do. Mm. So, I mean, now being such a big practice, how do you personally stay involved with the design process? How does that work? So we have change, which is good, and people join and people leave and we've spawned some very good practices and we stay in touch with those practices and we often invite them back in we also have colleagues who go back to other countries around the world where you know they've had five years in london so i I run a team of about 200 architects i have you know probably eight or ten leaders who work very closely with me so my drive as an individual within the practice is to stay completely focused on architecture um helping strategize about it and then develop tactics for it and then helping detail it of course there are people who are always close to the project than me but i can kind of bring a a critical and fresh eye sometimes independent from the day-to-day challenges of the job that's my modus operandi and my mum always says my father's an architect your father was kind of beginning to retire at your age i said well yeah but he, he built bigger buildings much earlier than me and he always said to me his advice to me was stay close to architecture that's the crucial thing. It's the only thing that distinguishes your business is, is the architecture. So I've, I've always heeded that advice. That's really interesting. So I come from a family of architects as well. So my grandfather was an architect and my father was an architect. And I don't know what your experience was, but my dad said to me, do anything you like, just don't do architecture. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, for a start, it takes forever to qualify. And then when you do... The planning laws are a nightmare. It takes forever to do anything. He was not a patient man. Um, and, uh, you know, he outlined quite a frustrating profession. What's your take on that? To someone thinking about a career in architecture, why put yourself through that education? Why do it, do you think? Well, I think your dad was not wrong, but I'm sure there's one other bit that he, he must have said to you that it's also, at its best, an incredibly fulfilling an exciting and engaging profession and to be involved in transforming and remaking places and enhancing people's lives as architecture can do. I don't think you can, I think it's the Cedric Price one, you know, you, you can't make someone who's unhappy happy, you, <laughs> but you, you can certainly lift people's spirits, through, yeah. you know, from a doctor's surgery to a school to a, a modest house extension as, as we originally worked on. Yeah. So um, I think you can do architecture at different speeds, mm. um, at different scales. I always say to people, you know, don't fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm an architect, therefore I won't make any money and and I'm going to be run ragged by my clients. Take responsibility, take control and and design your own career. It Mm. will go in places you never thought it would go, but you need to own it. And there are plenty of models now for faster education. I also think in our dynamic world, it's a slightly old-fashioned model to say architects are educated and then they go and practice you are educated and practising throughout your life. And and in a way, you know, if we want to make architecture more accessible and a more responsive profession, we should be accepting that and 
you know, architectural schools are a relatively new concept. I'm hugely supportive of them. I'm involved with the AA and Bartlett and the London School of Architecture, and they've all got different models, and they're all looking at speeding it up. And that does no harm, because some people can mm. be a great architect when you're quite early in life. Some people might mature later, and, and that's, that's fine. OK, yeah. I was reading your website bio yesterday, and something really struck me in it, because you say, or whoever's written it, and presumably you've approved it, it says that you're particularly interested in architecture's potential to offer delight as well as utility. Uh, and that really rings true with me. Can you explain that to people? What, what is delight when it comes to the design? Yeah, I actually, I, I did write it because I, I used to write an AJ column and I like writing. And that's yeah. another thing about architecture, which was why I went to study it, is you could be studying history, you could be looking at technology, you could be writing, you could be drawing. And that diversity of activity, of creative activity is really good. Yeah. Um, to me, architecture, I think it's, it's such a complex field dealing with sites and personalities and politics and something that's always a huge investment, whether it's a huge personal investment for someone to extend their kitchen or a huge you know, investment in a new university. And it's so drawn out that I always think you need to make architecture as simple as it possibly can be because life will naturally make it complicated. Mm. And so, you know, understanding a building, under seeing how it's made making things legible, making it easy to move through, recognising that when we finish, actually that's when the life of a building starts. That's incredibly important. So you shouldn't be upset when your building's been adapted or used in different ways because that kind of shows people are interested in your building and prepared yeah. to, to, to engage with it. And therefore, to me, you know, utility is about this idea that it, it is a useful building that also through the disposition of windows or volumes or materials or the soft close of a door or the flow of air actually makes it special and there's mm. moments when you suddenly realize someone thought about everything in this this space i'm in or these spaces i'm moving through mm. and they they've taken you the visitor on a journey that's enjoyable that you can engage with either subliminally or actually quite consciously and i think that's a really nice thing it's not architecture shouting at you shoved down your throat in a sort of instagram image world it's an architecture that is continuously revealing itself to you the more familiar you get with a building and that includes the building you walk past we're designing architecture for people who might never enter a building but they might just see that building and its windows and its walls and its gardens and its roof and it, you know how it reflects light in the sun or whatever i think that those people are our clients too mm. yeah very interesting um, you've recently been elected as the next president of the RIBA, or the Royal Institute of British Architects, or REBA, depending on <laughs> your disposition. It's a strange quirk, isn't it, that you get elected now, but you don't take up your post for another year or so. It's basically the highest elected position in architecture, isn't it? Why did you put yourself forward for that, and, and, and what do you want to achieve with it? Um, what happened was I, I just had a rant somewhere about it. Cause I just felt it was architecture to me was absent from the Institute. So a number of good friends and a number of people I didn't know said, yes, you're, you're right, but who's going to do something about it? Mm. And they encouraged me to stand and there was an election with, with four other candidates. And uh, my basic idea was that the RIBA should be a house of architecture that it's a completely voluntary club. My kind of phrase was, it needs to go from an institute of inertia into one of ideas. And the word diversity is used a lot now. And what I was arguing was architecture is 
diverse in terms of people's attitudes within the profession, and the RIBA should reflect that diversity and make it a place of ideas and debate and not a place of sort of institutional stasis. And so bring architecture to architects and connect them, then bring it to the public and then bring it to government, not because we're right, but because by sharing our knowledge, we can kind of help participate in an incredibly important debate now, which is about, you know, the long-term design of the, of the future environment. And obviously, in a kind of climate emergency crisis world we live in, you know, you can't just be panicking about the crisis. You have to actually respond. How, do we, how should we make buildings? How can we adapt buildings? How can we make new buildings that can be adapted for the future? What are the long-term values of architecture? And I think those are the kinds of things that the RIBA should be discussing. It's not a trade union. It, it's a place for generating ideas and sharing them amongst not just the profession, but sharing them with the public and allowing the public to inform those ideas. Brilliant, Simon. Let's move on to your three choices of living spaces. So the first one is the house you grew up in, which was designed by your late father. Tell us about it. Where is it located, first of all? Um, it's located in Wiltshire, um, near Marlborough College, in a small village called Pusey, in actually an even smaller place called Milkhouse Water, which sounds like an absurd kind of joke of a rural <laughs> name. Yeah. But it's between a canal and a railway line with a river, a stream of, of the Kennet running in the middle of the valley. And my father was, he was connected to modern architecture in a very close way. He was the partner of FRS York. How was he? Who, who was the um, writer of The Modern House, who actually wrote a book with your grandfather. He was my, he was my uh, grandfather's best friend as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So my father was York's partner. Okay. York's partner before the war were people like Marcel Breuer, Arthur Korn. You know, he was incredibly connected to that world. My father was a kind of classic... He was from Sheffield, grammar school, scholarship boy, came to London in, in the 50s, worked for Max Fry um, on the Festival of Britain and then worked for York. And then when he was 29, York gave him a commission to design Gatwick Airport. So it was a time of dramatic change and a kind of, I suppose, a post-war conference in youth. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't give a 28-year-old an airport now. Maybe you should do. Maybe you know, there's, another, there's another attitude to airports now. Yeah, I mean, it always baffles me because my grandfather designed... Pullman Court in Streatham, which is a beautiful early modern movement apartment building. I know it, yeah, I yeah. know it. Age 23. I mean, yeah. it's, it's mind-blowing now, isn't it? Well, it is, which makes you realise, we were talking earlier about the speed of architectural education. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the more educated you get, the, the better you're, you're going to get, and perhaps that the mixture of practice and academe dipping in and out across your life is a richer, richer journey. I think there was undoubtedly then... Um, we lived in a less litigious world, perhaps a less complex world, mm. and there was more conflict in youth. But in the 60s, my parents were picnicking somewhere and they saw a field for sale that had permission for a rather a dodgy house and, and, and they bought the land, it was a couple of acres, and he set out to build a, a very, very simple house as an escape from London. Uh, he always said to me, very, very modest, very, very simple and cost four times as much as it should have done. <laughs> Um, because he was an architect and he liked nice things. So, in fact, it was, it was a very simple grid of um, 16 foot by 8 foot rectangles, double squares, um, on a tartan grid of brick piers that sort of assembled into a kind of tessellation of uh, living rooms and bedrooms. 
that commanded a, a view over this field. They scraped the land and reorganised the mass. And the real expense came because he was very interested in kind of dimension, proportion, the modularity and making. The, the, the building has shadbolt veneer Douglas fir interiors, floor-to-ceiling, had an underfloor electric heating system, a rather nice brick tile uh, flooring, and then it had a continuous glazed clear story all the way around. My mother, who's 92 tomorrow, still lives there, and she always says she realises the house gets better and better with her with age. She does live a bit like Miss Havisham, <laughs> but it, it is magnificent. It has eight-foot-by-eight-foot eight doors that slide across each other to open to the outside. Right. She always reminds me that he was going to have sashes to allow you to walk into the garden, and he discovered this Danish pivoting door. So wherever you are in the house, these wonderful glass doors pivot, and you can just walk out into the landscape. It was a kind of a very special project to the family. We called it the cottage. Right. Um, because we always talk about going to a cottage in the country. Mm. Most people in the area thought it was an electricity substation. <laughs> um, and, you know, in fact, he had a lovely line before he died. He was in the garden and someone said, oh, that's dreadful, isn't it? And they said, oh, yes, I think it's a substation. Someone said, no, no, it's an old people's home. Look, there's one in the garden. <laughs> so, I mean, so I was always brought up with the ridicule of modern architecture in a sort of Osbert Lancaster style. Mm. Um, but it's a wonderful house. And actually, you know, without knowing, because he never encouraged me to be an architect. I wanted to be a footballer. Um, but he never encouraged me to be an architect, partly because I was surrounded by architecture. And I think he probably thought if I wanted to be an architect, I'd come to it my own way, in my own time. When I said I wanted to be an architect, he was very supportive, but I think he was very wary of me falling into architecture without really thinking thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, that's what I think I meant about my father earlier as well. I, th I think he was very conscious of that too. Do you think growing up in that house, though, that was very formative in terms of your move into architecture? Uh, yeah, I went to Sheffield to escape London. My father was very involved in the AA, but I didn't want to go to the AA, partly because I didn't want him to pay, and partly I wanted to leave London. But, I, yeah, that house was a sort of touchstone for me. And, of course, over my childhood, when we were on holiday, we'd go and look at a building by, you know, August Perret or Le Corbusier, or we went to America and looked at various buildings by Mies, or we went to Finland and buildings by Alto. So... Architecture was always there, but I was just someone... You know, I could have been going around a cathedral, I could have been going around a, a modern house. Um, mm. But, yes, it definitely informed my view partly about simplicity mm. and about doing simple things really, really well and not doing too many things. Mm. There was a great sort of thing in the... probably in the 80s about the failure of Le Corbusier's housing at Pessac, how it was over-adapted and, and bay windows were stuck on and shutters and... Corb apparently walked around and said, well, that's fine, you know, life is always right. Mm. And I think it always reminded me that, you know, architecture is for us to make it, but it's for other people to use it. And actually, I joked about my mum living like Miss Havisham, but it's still a wonderful house to be in. Mm. And her sprawling paperwork everywhere, it doesn't matter. That's, that's life, and, and the architecture accommodates life. And, and so I think materially, dimensionally, logically... It influenced me, but also culturally in terms of this idea that architecture at its best is a wonderful background to individual choice in life. Mm. I'm intrigued by the football career. Did that not take off because you didn't make it or you just uh, imagined you were better than you were? Uh, yeah, probably a mixture of both. I think to the age of about 14, I was in with a hope. And then um, I think you, you drift out of the... the, the you know, my, my daughter's on the, um, on the books at Arsenal, so maybe she'll, oh, wow. she'll make up for it. So did this house that you grew up in have a big garden then? It's a sculpted two-acre informal meadowland. 
but even informal Meadowland, you know, from a field was a was a big project. So I think again that idea of seasonal setting and change, you mm. know, influences a lot of what I think about now. Even when we're making an office building, one will say, why can't we have the most luscious garden on the roof? You know, mm. and this obviously fits in with ideas about biophilic design. But biophilic design is is not a new idea. It's just something we've forgotten about, which is how buildings sit in their landscape, be that an urban or a rural or indeed a suburban landscape. Mm. Yeah. Can you remember as a child how the house itself made you feel? Yeah, it was a... My father's got a mental image. It was always a bit like Luca Bugier's Maison de la Weekend, a, a small little house with a very large living room. And what was magic was the four kids. We had two bunk beds in our eight-foot by 16-foot room, a little play space, a door into the garden, and we just went out in a way you probably wouldn't be allowed now and just went out to the fields and, and played all day. And then the house was a place of retreat... And the the good thing was we didn't have a television. Mm. And it it just gave us a different connection with life than than that that we had in London. I don't know if you agree, but I think a lot of people don't think about how children are affected by their home environment. I actually think it's a really important thing. But I was reading recently, it's very interesting, that um, they proved in America that children who who did their work revision for their exams in a a very well-lit room with lots of natural light coming in, actually got better grades than those who revised in darker rooms. And that's it's quite a, a direct example, I think, of how you can, yeah, influence children's well-being through good design. I mean, do you have any other thoughts about... You've got children yourself. Pres- I've got three young girls, yeah. I've got three young girls as well. How do you think about residential design and its ability to positively affect children and their livelihoods in a way? I mean, I think that... Light, view, I think sound's really important. If I'm being brutally honest, I tended to grow up in open-plan modern spaces where we were all endlessly talking over each other. Yeah. And so in my, my home, there are rooms with doors. Yeah. <laughs> and one child could be in one room making a lot of noise, another child could be in another room, and I could be in another room. I think that idea of home as a series of sanctuaries for individuals as well as the collective, is really important. Mm. And that house I was referring to, in a way, it was a maison de la weekend, and therefore the, the bedroom was just a place you, you slept in. But I think, you know, in a home where you live, the, the bedroom is also your, your retreat. Maybe it's a place where you play on your own or you, you work on your own, and then you come out to socialise. And even when you socialise, the idea of different scales of space and places to sit at different times of the day, even the, in the most modest house, and which is why, actually... Our first five years of advertising the Hampstead and Highgate Express and doing loft extensions and kitchen extensions Mm. was actually great training. Mm. One, because when you were given a building, you realised what an incredible opportunity it was. But two, you'd sort of learned to think about architecture at a very modest scale, but incredibly important scale. That of, you know, how a family coalesces in a way that makes life more than bearable, but, you know, makes it delightful and memorable Mm. and enjoyable. Mm. Between the rows. Yeah, <laughs> between the rows, yeah. Excellent. Let's move on to your second choice, Simon. So it's the, the garden house on the same plot, I believe, which you designed yourself, didn't you? Tell us about that one. Uh, yeah, so my father happened to retire in, in July 89, and we happened to open an office in July 89. Those were entirely coincidental, but quite happy coincidences. And he bought himself a, a present when he retired, which was an original Le Corbusier painting, 
And his other present was to commission myself and my partners to design a house in the garden, which was called The Pool House, because names mattered. And it was, a, it was our first RIBA award-winning project, and it was a simple barn set 100 yards from the house at 90 degrees to it. It was very much like a casket, in contrast to the elegant tessellations of his house. And it was a sort of upside-down house, so it had a, a swimming pool with windows at the floor, and then it had a little tiny studio and bedroom and a sauna and a shower in a kind of service wall that looked at the Wells Coates idea of an interlocking, you know, three-and-two section, but on a tiny, tiny domestic scale. And it, it was a really important project, and it was environmentally intelligent, and we, we were using ground source heat pumps at early days, you know, to power the pool and this kind of thing to keep it warm. And it was a lovely project, because he gave it, really, essentially, to us, but I obviously led on the project. And he would come in and, and give us a bit of a critical overview, but leave it to us to come back and present it to him. And again, as is the way, like his own house, it costs more than it should have. And at the end of it, someone said to him, I didn't know you liked swimming. And he said, no, I don't, but I like architecture. <laughs> um, so it was a great present, a great project. And again, that idea about long-term change and adaptability, it was an incredibly simple project, but very carefully detailed. And life moves on and, you know, we visit less, but my sister visits more and she has a family. She's almost moved there. So recently, I left the pool in but drained it and turned the, the pool into a living room and created a bedroom at the end for when, when I stay, which is a double-height room with three kids below and us two in a bed deck above. My sister's at the other end and the, the, the swimming pool room has become a, a living room with its windows running along the floor, which was wonderful when it was a swimming pool um, because you swam along the level-deck pool looking out over the meadow. OK. But now in a house, it's completely upside down. But I have to say... It's quite delightful. And I cut some new circular portholes in through the steel and cedar-clad building. It's a bit like living in a castle. It's kind of absurd. People who know nothing about its history walk in and say, what a wonderful room, not least because it has very little glass and it's mainly solid. And I lined the inside in the same cedar we'd used on the outside. And it's just quite an interesting idea about a very specific design for a very specific function being changed to something completely different, yet still... In a strange way, there's a memory of the pool that I know, that others don't know, but mm. actually it works rather wonderfully and the light coming in at low level actually becomes a place, going back to children, where the kids lie on the floor playing, but they now have a view yeah, of the right. landscape. Right. And, and we designed a few nursery schools in our day and I always remember my mother talking about Charles Rennie Mackintosh and the heating pipes being looped to pick up the wet clothing of the infants and being at only three foot high and windows being at low level. So I've always been interested in the idea of a school not being Fisher-Price toys silly with circles and triangles in it, but actually just playing with the scale of windows and places where kids can crawl into and look out and be in a space that's not the size of an adult and yeah. playing with you know different scales. So in a way, the pool house happily happenstance does do that now as, as an upside-down living room, you know, but it, but it works. Yeah. I find that as well. I think children really like that change of scale and, and the unexpected in buildings, don't they? We've got a, a built-in bed at home and it's got a little door underneath it and the children can scuttle in and hide beneath the bed and that's their favourite place in the whole house to be. And I think it's really important to design in those little John Malkovich portals, don't you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, we actually, because of our split section, we have this little bed deck, like a Scottish bed deck that's in a cupboard that you slide a door back, and it's, it's only three foot eight high, but it's in the curve of the roof. Everyone loves that bed deck. Mm. It's a little porthole, it's a little escape. They can close the door and lock themselves out of the room. Mm. They can jump from it onto the bed and, you know, injure themselves. <laughs> There's all kinds of games can go on. And I, I, I do think that idea about a little bit of theatre... In life, you know, when I talked about utility, but delight comes through scale shifts, through little discoveries, um, and through places that are not always that certain, you know, mm. that they can imagine different ways of using it to, to that which you ever imagined. Mm. Yeah. You touched on sustainability earlier, and it's obviously very central to what you do at HMM. To anyone listening who has a flat or, you know, refurbishing their place or, or building a, a little house somewhere... Do you have any pointers for them? What, what kind of things are important? What should they be thinking about most of all, do you think? I suppose the biggest project going on is refurbishment and adaptation. Mm. And I, I think there's a tendency to open up and transform. Mm. And I think perhaps not for Protestant reasons of, of economy, but actually look at the building, try and understand what it was designed for. How much do you need to do? Can you do a lot less... And then when you do something, do it really well. Mm. You know, often you don't need to connect those two rooms up. Allow mm. for the difference. Have some surprise. Have some scale shifts. But when you do make something, actually, that investment in a better window with a nicer system of ventilation and maybe a seat in which you can sit mm. actually can pay far more than the big architectural gestures. And I, you know, when we were younger, we used to talk about you know, shadow gap detailing and all these kinds of things. And I, I remember someone said to me, well, you know, architraves were invented for a real reason. Plaster shrinks away from timber and you're left with cracks. Mm. And I think, you know, architects love, you know, we love making mitered glass corners using silicon mastic and these kind of things. <laughs> and in the end, you actually think, that's not going to age well. You know, yeah. things that age well, things like skirtings existed for a reason, mm. robust materials removing plaster and revealing natural materials, bricks, clays, timbers, that we know will just get better with patina and damage and age. Mm. So, you know, to me, it's about doing less, allowing for lots of different things to happen and not trying to over-prescribe life, going back to that earlier conversation, accepting that, you know, where you bring in light can transform a room more than extending it sometimes. You know, big windows that open onto gardens can also negatively transform a room perhaps you know one really nice door is nicer than some huge bifolding piece mm. that leaves you with a sort of hole and the room isn't big enough to cope with that window mm. so you know spend a bit of time think about it and then think about where light comes in and, and how you use a space where it doesn't work for you and then that's what you act upon mm. i think that is all spectacularly good advice i have to say I really like the idea as well, and I always think people don't do this enough, of taking hold of the keys to your new home and just living in it for a bit. Is it a year? Is it two years? I don't know. But just seeing how the light plays across it, seeing how actually some of those existing materials that you didn't think were right might become quite important to you, the way that they feel against your feet or the way that the light plays across them. So... I think we have this urge, don't we, to sort of spray, you know, our new environment like a, a dog on a lamppost, but actually it's not necessarily the right way to go about it. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, my my wife will complain, but our house is surrounded by Vitzo yeah. uh, shelving and furniture because I love the fact that I can endlessly move and adapt. I can almost use it as a wall divider where I want. And actually, I always say to people, and I've made this mistake, but, you know, buy pieces of furniture you like that will last mm. and, and and you can move them from house to house as they get older they get better and you can recover them and mm. we're rediscovering all those pleasures and of course ikea is a wonderful place and, and it makes furniture that might last but there is something about the equivalent of your grandfather's chest that is passed down from generation or the welsh dresser neither of which i have but i think um it's the same with architecture. You know, the, the place I live now, I lived in it for two years, partly because I hadn't got any money because I was mortgaged up to the hill. But also it was a chance to sort of think, what might I do and, and doodle mm. and do drawings and then think, no, I don't need to do that and mm. I might do that and mm. can I play with that space and rethink that. But I did discover that the way I lived in it was quite different to that which I might have done if I'd you know, designed it from afresh, which, of course, is a challenge because when a client comes to you, you, you don't normally wait a couple of years. So I think that's that thing about saying to a client, well, maybe we can do this and let's see how it goes, then maybe we can do that. And allowing for change in design mm. is perhaps a way of, of accommodating that. So you, you segued nicely there into your, your third and final choice, which is your own family home where you are now, and you've just finished refurbishing it, I think. But tell us, where's that, and, and tell us about it. Um, well, I moved to Bickenhall Mansions, which is between Baker Street and Gloucester Place, mm-hmm. just, just south of the Maliband Road. And I bought a 1,000-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment. I couldn't keep the pattern or, or age because it had been built in the 80s on top of the mansion block in, in the former servants' quarters and had been done up by a developer in a most unpleasant way. <laughs> But I lived with that for two years um, and learned about how I wanted to use the space. And I had this idea that my room on the roof, my servants' quarters, would be like an eyrie. And so I would place various portals in various places. I made the bedrooms almost like little cabins, fitted out as cabins. And then I worked with my friend Hanif Kara, the engineer, to take all the trusses out of the roof so it becomes a double-height volume in the underside of the ridge and the eaves in the triangular space. So I had a great fun doing that project. And someone came to visit and said, it is, it's like living in a boat, which again referenced that, that, that idea of Wells Coats. And I had little ladders going to spaces at you know, high level in the void. And then I met my, my wife and we bought the air rights and we added another 500 foot, which meant you know, we lived under the stars for three months. But it was a wonderful project of, you know, a few years later to rethink the house and add a space that didn't exist, um, you know, up into the sky. Then children came along, so we shuffled bedrooms and bathrooms around. And then we bought the flat below and we rented that out for five years. And we've recently drilled the staircase through and connected the whole uh, lot up. So someone said to me, it was once a ship, it's now a house in the sky. But it's been a wonderful project, which I'm completely done in by now. Um, <laughs> the builder said to me, it's, he spent five Christmases with us. Um, he, he's a wonderful <laughs> joiner. They've not, not been consecutively. There was a break in between. Okay. But I finally created, after, if I'm honest, eight building projects, I finally created a place that I really do think is, is really rather special. It's not bad. It captures the spirit of all the houses I've enjoyed both living in and visiting it has a little piece of my history and our family history um, scattered throughout. Mm. And it is, you know, a wonderfully spacious reinvention 
of a servant's quarters, the formal quarters underneath, and then the room in the sky that we, we, we were able to um, add in, which is where I am now. I call it the Mary Poppins view, you know, seven storeys in London. I can read the time from Marylebone Station clock. You know, I haven't got a pool house, I haven't got a garden, but I've created this, this other place that has a, my collected history invested in all, in all the details. So how old are your girls? Ten, ten and eight. And what's it like for them growing up in an apartment in central London? They are incredibly privileged, as I always remind them. They, you know, <laughs> there's a funny thing about this. They walk to their school, mm. and when they want to go into the garden, we walk a few hundred yards to Regent's Park. What kind of things do you live with? Do you have artworks and objects and books? And I, I do. I've sort of finally got enough space to unfurl things that I've acquired over many, mm. many years. My parents were collectors of, of art, but from friends of theirs who they bought at the time, you know, some very nice 60s artists. When my father died, I was given some of those pieces. I, I recently bought a very, very fun piece, was um, Centrepoint. A friend of mine, Mike Hussey, is doing the, the project to turn it from bad offices into rather, rather elegant housing. And as part of that, we came up with the idea... Um, with Patrick Murray Burroughs, of taking all the letters down, replacing them, giving each letter from the top of the building to an artist, getting them to play with the letters, and then auctioning them off. And the money then went to the, to the homeless charity, Centrepoint, so it was a perfect thing. And there were two that I really liked. Richard Wentworth had taken the N from the word point and turned it on its side so it became a Z and had higher value in the Scrabble game. <laughs> and Mark Wallinger had taken the I, because he's always been interested in gambling and the, the ego and I, and done nothing but lean it against a wall. <laughs> so I have, much to my family's bafflement, I have a Mark Wallinger signed, uh, found I from Centrepoint, which he kindly <laughs> came round and signed and lent. And my, one of my daughters came up to him and said, my dad thinks you're a really good artist. We think this is rubbish. But <laughs> well, he took good. it in the best possible <laughs> spirit. But it's a lovely thing because he has done, in a way, what we were talking about earlier. He's taken that eye, lent it against the wall, left it with its cracked neon, but it's a kind of rather magic piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I think that's fantastic, Simon. Thanks so, so much for talking to me. I've really enjoyed that. And particularly your views around how people can just think a bit more sensibly about their refurbishments. I think that's really interesting. So thanks so, so much. Uh, absolute pleasure. I love being a voyeur, look at your magazine and seeing what people are doing and have done and, and, <laughs> and the dreams they've constructed. Yeah. So um, it's been a real pleasure talking Good. to you. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. To keep in touch with what we're doing, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can see photos of the homes we talked about today on our website, themodernhouse.com. The producer of this episode was Caroline Hughes, and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective. <laughs>